0: Hello, welcome to the Mile End Institute podcast. I'm Carl Pike. I'm a lecturer in politics here at Queen Mary. Today, we're going to be talking uh, to uh, two brilliant philosophers and writers about a brilliant book about four brilliant women. Metaphysical Animals is the story of four friends: Philippa Foot, Mary Midgley, Elizabeth Anscombe, and Iris Murdoch. They were philosophers. They were incredibly talented and they achieved remarkable things. They met in 1940 at Oxford, and all four contributed to philosophy over long careers, and to literature too, uh, not only in Iris Murdoch's case with her many novels, but for example with Elizabeth Anscombe, who on top of her own philosophical work did the translation for Ludwig Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations which is a very significant contribution to the English language and literature. As a big Mary Midgley fan, I was excited about this book prior to its publication, read it quickly, and I'm really happy to have Dr. Claire McCool and Dr. Rachel Wiseman with us today to talk about their book. Hello both, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi Carl. Hi Carl, thanks for inviting us. Yeah, can I just add to your list of literary achievements?
0: By you the definitely truth. can.
1: You may not know this, but um, Mary Midgley wrote an unpublished <laughs> science fiction novel, nineteen sixties, <laughs> I think it mm-hmm. was. It's called Winter Salt, and the premise is that one day human society wakes up, and it turns out that we now hibernate right we've sort of evolved this capacity to hibernate through the winters and it's about the political implications of that change in our um, animal nature so it causes all kinds of trouble to the parliamentary system (laughs) and the civil service and it's it's a really it's a kind of political science fiction farce mm-hmm. um, and you can read it in the Mary Midgley archive which is in Durham University.
0: Well there you go I, I, I did I was aware of a, a manuscript because I think she mentions it mentions it in her memoir um, but um, I didn't know the plot and it sounds typically interesting I have to say <laughs> um, uh, that's great well I wondered if we could start um, with with your story, actually, and with, with the writing of the book um, to, to then get into, into the story of the quartet. Um, could you tell us a little bit then about the beginning of the, of the project and the, the first conversations you had with, with Mary Midgley after you'd read, I think, an article by her in the paper about philosophy during and after the war?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so me and Rachel met in 2013. We were just sort of fledgling philosophers. We both got jobs. Um, and as women in philosophy, we were sort of concerned about the situation and thinking, you know, what can we do? How can we ameliorate this? How can we make our way really in philosophy? So it was sort of on our radar that we wanted to, you know, get involved in kind of gender activism in philosophy. And then we read this letter uh, by Mary in the Guardian, which said, you know, basically her what she's saying is that her and her three friends, so the four of them, they kind of flourished in philosophy because the men were called away to war, and suddenly they weren't in the extreme minority. And Rachel and I read this and we thought, wow, this is incredible. Like, what you know, what changed? Who left? Like, what were the institutional conditions? Maybe we should try and find out a bit more about this. Um, and really luckily for us, Mary Midgley lived in Newcastle, which is where we're basically, you know, Rachel's in Newcastle. I'm very close by. Um, and so we thought, well, we'll we'll go and see her. And she was living in a, a retirement home, a Quaker retirement home. We made an appointment to see her and uh, we brought a, a video team like, a, you know, we, f- we filmed her on that first occasion and uh it was just wonderful mm. yeah
1: I think when we we arrived we thought you know she was 96 or 97 at the time mm. and we thought you know is she going to be able to remember anything mm. and if she can remember it is it going to be interesting and not only could she remember everything <laughs> um Also, she was still, she was still doing philosophy, you know, she was just finishing off the manuscript to her last philosophy book, which I don't know if you know it, Carl. it's called What Is Philosophy For? I do, yeah. It's just a brilliant kind of defence of of the subject and a kind of real distilling down of all of her years of wisdom and, and work in the discipline um and so you know we we kind of went in with this idea that we were going to meet this kind of frail old lady and we met this kind of phenomenon absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah. fireball of energy yeah she really was and she was kind of saying you know we went in very much kind of like oh it's so terrible being a woman in philosophy and she just sat us down and said you know come on pull your socks up roll up your sleeves what what are you going to do about it
2: um
1: and she was so you know, you'll know from reading her philosophy. She has such a kind of practical yeah. mind, and she doesn't take any nonsense. And she doesn't want any. <laughs> you know, she doesn't want anybody to start. You know, getting down on themselves and feeling gloom. She's just, you know, okay. Here's the problem. What are you going to do about it? Um, and so we started talking to her, and initially we were most interested in the kind of this question of what happened in nineteen thirty nine when she she and the other three were undergraduates when the men went away like we were interested in the kind of social political context and we started for example running women's only reading groups with our students to see what happened when you took the you know the male voices out of the conversation but then we started reading more and more of her work alongside the work of the other three and we realized we weren't just dealing with the kind of you know a a story about what happens when the men go away, but we were dealing with a story about four women doing philosophy together in a in a kind of way that we hadn't seen before.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean there is something uh almost kind of movie screenplay like about the origins of this book, I think. I I can sort of imagine uh you guys meeting her, uh, Mary Midgley and, and her telling you this story. I mean, did did the did the story kind of come together in your minds? Pretty quickly, then, when she started speaking about her memories and and the other three,
2: well, to some extent, the framing came quite quickly. I suppose. Um, I mean, it, the the book opens and closes with uh, Elizabeth Anscombe objecting in 1956 to Oxford University's proposal to honor uh, Harry S. Truman with a degree, um, and so we that's such a dramatic scene that we always thought that that would be a really good kind of opening gambit gambit and it also pose a philosophical question to the reader mm. um so we always thought that would be a really nice setup and then we had i suppose the narrative envelope of the four young women arriving at oxford and you know growing up in philosophy and the men going away and everything but i think what we discovered is that once you start reading their philosophy together and you try and situate it in a kind of intellectual tradition you know, there was just a huge amount more work that we had to do in in uh, uncovering basically ne- fi- figures who've been neglected but were very influential on the quartet, um, in particular, Donald MacKinnon. Mm. So he was the tutor of all four of them, in fact. Um, and he's, in, in theology, he's a very, uh, you know, he's well-known as, th- as a theologian, but in philosophy, he's been completely neglected and he was hugely influential. Mm. So I think, uh, and he... You know, getting to grips with his particular philosophy was very challenging because it's very sophisticated. Mm. Um, so he was a figure that we needed to get down with. Uh, mm. Also, A.D. Lindsay, H.W.B. Joseph, as well as the intuitionists, and then, you know...
1: And then the refugee scholars. And then the
2: right? refugee scholars. Mm. That was a huge uh, discovery to realise the extent of the influence of um, particularly scholars that had that had come with the Warburg Institute from mm. Warburg um yeah just,
1: just on what you say about the kind of the filmic character like one of the i mean we did try to write the book in a way to attract you know we wrote it as with scenes you know we wrote it because we yeah. thought this is like this is a, a story that could go on the film and you know we've had lots of conversations about who would play the <laughs> the you know the 97 year old mary midgley <laughs> giving us this this story. Um, But one thing we did before we started writing the book was we just started telling the story. You know, basically just in that very rough stage of you know, look, this is what happened. These four young women they arrived at Oxford, they became friends. The men left. They were taught by refugees and women, and they came up with this philosophy that connects, you know, human that reconnects ethics to human life. We just started saying that to to students, basically. With particularly women students. And everybody just kind of went, whoa, as soon as you say that, it was so inspiring, especially to students who were maybe feeling like philosophy was very isolating, like it had to be practiced combatively, like it was only for kind of older You know figures of a certain kind you know suddenly just saying oh look we've got these four young women doing philosophy together in a way that engages with the holocaust and hiroshima and war and motherhood and all this other stuff was just so inspiring so it, it was it took form as a kind of story I think before mm-hmm, it became the book that it is yeah before we even had a proper handle on the philosophy we realized that just the the myth of it if you like was really important
0: yeah I I, I think that's fascinating I just want to pick up on something you said before we move on more specifically to the to the to the four um, philosophers. The, the refugee scholars and the, the environment at Oxford at the time really comes out of the book really, really strongly. Um, and um, it, it, that, that must have been fascinating to explore. It, 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 it comes to mind, obviously, you often talk about the kind of list of lectures that are available that term um, and the names appearing and from different parts of Europe um you know offering their offering their their thoughts that must have been quite fascinating to explore what impact do you think that had on the quartet and the kind of intellectual and academic life of britain at the time
2: it's a really good question i mean I think it's extraordinary to think. I mean, so the Nazi legislation that prevented uh, Jewish academics from teaching came in in th- 1933. So you started having um, a slow trickle of refugee scholars uh, coming in from the mid-1930s. Uh, but by the time the quartet arrived, so 37, 38, there was there's quite a substantial number. And I think, you know, these figures were, you know, rectors of university. They were... Mm-hmm. At the, at the absolute, like, top of their game in, you know, Germany, Austria, Italy, like, um, mm. Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, mm. <laughs> you um, top of their game. And you know, Oxford was, you know, it's, it's hard to believe now, but it was something of an academic backwater. And then you had, like, the intellectual giants of Europe just converging on the pavements. Mm. And these sure. are the people that taught our women, you know? Yeah. And it's true, you know, you had...
1: Um, and i think even more so once the war started and the mm-hmm. the male dons the you know the english male lots dons were all called away mm-hmm. so then there were you know there was a necessity to fill the teaching and that's when they called on these scholars. yeah
2: um so Ernst kazira for example he came in the i think he came very quickly 30, 3334 and in, a number of his extended family came um so richard valser i think was married mm-hmm. to his daughter i'm not 100% sure about that but valser um, his son Heinz Kassirer. He was initially in Glasgow, and then he came to Oxford. But he he taught all of the quartet Kant and moral philosophy, and he's extremely important mm. and, and influential. His archive has just actually recently opened in Sheffield. Um. But those two, Raymond Klebanski, uh, who was a, a Plato scholar, taught Anskum. She continued to translate with him up until the sixties.
1: And Lottie Lebowski. and
2: Le- Lottie Lebowski also another. Those three were all Warburg scholars, so they were um, associated with the Warburg Library, um, which was based in Hamburg, and ha- which had to be transported mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, very dramatically to uh, to the UK mm-hmm. um, at the start of the war. So. Yeah, I mean... It, and, of this course, is, Edward
1: Frankel affirmed Ed, Edward the Agamemnon. Exactly. Nonsense. Yeah. But it, it's it's kind of completely not talked about, I think, yeah. amongst kind of the people who want to stress the kind of analytic, you know, o- Oxford English language tradition. Yes. At, at this moment, you know, there was this enormous influx of incredible mm-hmm. humanistic philosophy, you know, and scholarship that came came to Oxford and yeah. that that fed into this generation. And it does
2: sort of problematize a little bit, at least in the work of our women, this idea of an analytic continental mm. kind of divide because there isn't the idea of analytic philosophy is only sort of coming into being, being sort of I don't know, shaped or theorized. It's like in the kind of mid thirties, early 40s and so mm. on I think Margaret MacDonald is, uses it mm. first some in around 1936 or 7 mm. the word analytic philosophy so there there isn't really an idea of analytic philosophy at this point and I think you know there's for example there's a figure Fritz Heinemann who comes in and he's like one of the first people who uh, notices that there's a kind of a strand, an intellectual strand, which we which later becomes uh, existentialism. Which that he of, coined.
1: He the he term, coined yeah.
2: it existential philosophy, or whatever, which which he sees kind of stemming from Kierkegaard. Mm. Um, and you know Murdoch is taught by him. You know, mm. so yeah. I think they they're not prying to to see this massive distinction mm-hmm. between mm. British philosophy and European philosophy at all. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: yeah I mean there, there's there's so much we could talk about um it's it's hard to choose um because another thing that comes across I I think in the book too is is the impact on people who uh went to war and came back uh, yeah. and the impact on on the ways they see the world um and some of the horrific things they experienced I think you also document that really really well in the book yeah. um it yeah. was a, a, a very unique time obviously
1: yeah, and one thing that I, kind of growing up in philosophy, I always, when I was sort of reading moral philosophy and, and you know, British philosophy from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, it somehow always, almost felt as if the war hadn't happened. <laughs> like, there's no, you kind of imagine that after the the Holocaust, say, there would have been this kind of step change in moral philosophy that you would have seen moral philosophy kind of grappling with the questions that that posed but when you kind of do the standard story of 20th century British philosophy you don't see that event kind of salient in the in the main text and so it was always a puzzle to me like what what happened and so it was really intriguing to kind of learned the story of the figures who'd kind of you know so for example R.M. Hare is a really important character here so he was the same year as our women so he started with them but he went off to fight when the war started and he returned to finish his degree after the war having spent the last part of the war in a Japanese prisoner of war camp And looking at the way in which that experience turned him away from kind of what we would think of as moral realism and towards a kind of an idea that morality is something you have to make for yourself. Mm. All you can do is is kind of create a set of rules for yourself and then bind yourself to them. Mm. And you can't expect those rules to come from a culture or from God or from human nature you know and you think of him in that in that context in that prisoner of war camp and the kind of decisions and and interactions that and, and things that he was seeing there and you think of him kind of coming up with this this moral philosophy so seeing that and then contrasting that with the reaction of somebody like Philippa Foot, who you know, she says that she was planning after the war to to become a philosopher of mind. That was what she was really interested in. But when she saw the pictures coming out of, of Germany after the war of the concentration camp, she she realized that she had to become a moral philosopher because she she saw that what moral philosophy needed was the the kind of the language and the metaphysics to be able to say you know, this is what happened here is evil and is wrong. And that not to be a matter of, you know, opinion, or culturally relative, or, you know, somebody's sort of, you know, subjective view on the matter.
0: Yes. One of the things that comes out in Mary Midgley's philosophy, I think is, is is a way of doing philosophy together, of thinking together. And sometimes I think she just, you know, makes that, point about humans that you know that that we don't think in isolation we have to think together um just because of things like language and concepts but in your book also there is a story of uh, quite literally thinking together right sometimes being in the same room sometimes you know over a cup of tea or, or whatever um and that that is a fascinating thing in itself i think just just working together and thinking together um, and obviously it produced quite remarkable things um, in this instance um, so what was it like kind of exploring that and are there particular moments that you that you reflect upon in the book that that show how important that can be
2: yeah i think for for both of us um, the model of doing friendship or sorry model of doing philosophy with friends was really important and kind of transformative because we both felt quite alienated by the kind of more isolationist, combative sort of tendencies of philosophy. It didn't seem intellectually very productive or fruitful. Um, and we wanted to try and do philosophy together. And of course we were friends as well. So having this sort of model of, you know, of a different kind of philosophical practice to sort of follow and try and model and emulate a little bit, was really important for us. And I mean, as you said, for Mary, and all of the women, in fact, you know, we're we're social beings, we're social animals. Um, we're we depend on each other. So it it just any kind of philosophy that doesn't come out of that kind of very grounded interconnectedness is going to is going to fall short in some way. Um, I think Murdoch's philosophy in particular does a really good job of theorizing, um. What what is needed in order to kind of philosophize together or to think together. So she talks a, a lot about, you know, the fact that we each have our kind of own perspective on the world, as it were. But in order to try and align our perspectives, we need to have joint objects of attention. So those could be, you know, art objects, or it could be like a problem or a picture or a myth, or the there, there needs to be something that we're both considering. We're all considering, if you like, from different angles. So as to kind of bring our perspectives into alignment or maybe discover how another person views the world just through conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, conversation is a really important, um, uh, well, topic, but also feature, I think, of uh, these women's philosophy. Mm.
1: Um, I think as well just that's making me think that there's something about the kind of conversation and it being a conversation amongst friends that's really
2: important.
1: So so Iris Murdoch has this idea, um, this really true and lovely idea. So one thing she says is, you know, you have a different idea of courage when you're 21 to when you're, you know, 71, say. And so what happens is, you know, when you're a child, you learn the word courage through, a, an, you know, some little examples of people being courageous or being praised for having courage or being told to be brave. And then as you go through your life and you face contexts in which you're required to be brave or you feel you weren't courageous or you, you know, meet other examples, your, your concept of courage kind of particularizes to, to your life. So by the time you're a kind of fully fledged adult, each of us is going to have a different concept of courage, although we're all using the same word courage. Mm. So what this means is if you enter into a conversation in a kind of combative mode, you're just going to be about anything important, you know, about love or courage or justice or democracy, (laughs) you're going to Talk past each other because what's really needed to make progress is to come to understand the particularity of everybody else's terms and to try and sort of triangulate and understand and come to occupy each other's perspective.
2: So
1: you. It's not just that it has to be done together, you know, because you can have an argument, mm-hmm. two people can have an argument, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of conversation, but it has to be done in a context in which you're both making like a, a genuine effort to to understand the other person and to see them as mm. it, something genuinely outside of yourself, as, as Iris Murder would say. So that's why it's it's kind of friendship. And of course, we were writing this during the pandemic mm. as well, which made... Yeah, that need for other people and and the value and importance of our friendship as we were writing so much more salient. I think.
0: I mean, I guess that takes us a little bit close. Um, certainly, in terms of understanding people and our kind of shared understandings of, of language and things, to to, to Wittgenstein um, and um, Elizabeth Anscombe's uh, work with Wittgenstein is is in itself. A fascinating story is you know, another fascinating story within your fascinating story um th- there was a lot there was a lot to it particularly Anscombe's um it certainly felt to me anyway and this was the first time I'd ever really read properly about about them working together Anscombe's contribution certainly to um how Wittgenstein's philosophy has been understood and used today is very big right
2: yeah, it's 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 huge, and <laughs> um, I'll let Rachel say something about that in a minute because she's a sort of Wittgenstein scholar. But uh, I was going to say we we interviewed Mary Warnock um, as p- for uh, as part of our research for the book, and she told us when we recount the story in the book itself about going to have tutorials with Elizabeth An- Elizabeth Anscombe in her study at twenty seven Saint John's, and like going into the study and seeing all these little piles of paper, kind of uh, kind of in heaps. All over the study floor and those were zettel those were remarks um that ended up in the philosophical investigations that anscombe was organizing you know she was mm-hmm. collating them sorting them and putting them in these little heaps and she she gives she gave like a little pile to to mary and uh, mary cycled off with them in her in the basket of her bicycle but i remember <laughs> her telling us this and we were absolutely our minds were blown yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. and well it was incredible because it was like well we knew she'd edited and translated but the extent of her involvement like you said it is is really phenomenal and I don't know Rachel like how much is that understood do you think now?
1: Well I mean I think in a way you know everybody knows that she was the translator and I think you know although there have been subsequent translations of the philosophical investigations hers is absolutely definitive and is you know just beautiful Mm. I think and um in the lecture she gave a lecture on the radio just after the Philosophical Investigations was published in nineteen fifty-three and she talks about the difficulty of translating the German of the philosophical investigations into English. She says something like, Can you remember the quote? She says that in English um, high language goes about in fine clothes or something like mm-hmm. that but that's not the case in German mm-hmm. so um, she has to find a way of translating what is very kind of homely language plain. in German plain homely language in German into something that's recognizably kind of refined in English but without losing that kind of earthiness, ho- earthiness. Mm-hmm. yeah so it's a it's an absolutely tremendous feat but I don't think i mean there's some amazing work now being done on the editing of the tra- mm. of the tractatus and oh, sorry the editing of the investigations and some amazing new scholarship that i think mm. is starting to uncover the extent to which she was much more than you know a translator and the other thing that was lovely just thinking about that translation was um you know we never noticed before mm. the names of the people that she thanks in her in the at the beginning of her translation of the Philosophical Investigations, which includes Iris Murdoch and Lottie Lebowski.
2: Yeah.
1: so to be able to kind of fill out the context of the, them helping her with that translation was was one of the things that we found really exciting. Yeah, that was really
2: nice. And there's a few letters where Iris is saying to friends, you know, I have to read this little bit of the Investigations, mm. you know, so she, uh, you know, for for Elizabeth, so. That was really exciting because these women are getting the investigations even before it's published from mm. Elizabeth. So, you know, they're receiving it before there's this massive weight of exegesis directly from her. Mm. And that's really significant as well in terms of how they go on to use Wittgenstein in their work.
0: Mm. I mean, so what we of, often know, you know as the later Wittgenstein and the story of the quartet, there was, if you like, um, a challenge to all of this or 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 indeed they presented a challenge to something that appeared to be dominating and that was um it goes by a few names i guess but you could consider just be to be called positivism and the work that was positivist in nature um could you just explain briefly then kind of the, the what that was and the kind of challenge and concerns that the quartet had and leveled at that kind of philosophy
1: Yeah, that's a massive (laughs) question. That's a massive question, Carl. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, I'll try and say something brief and Claire can can jump in. So um, just before our women went up to Oxford, there was a a kind of a, a big... Uh, splash, I suppose, in British philosophy, created by a book that was published by A.J. Air, air called Language, Truth and Logic. And basically, that book came about, A.J. had been sent by Gilbert Ryle to Vienna to kind of hang out with the Vienna Circle there. And the Vienna Circle at the time were kind of really obsessed with Wittgenstein, Frederick Weisman was there, he w- will later appear in our book at, at Cambridge and Oxford. But Fred, Freddie, I went and spent a couple of months hanging out with the Vienna circle. He, his, his German wasn't very good. So he couldn't really follow off what was happening. But he was in his early 20s. And he was, a you know, thought of himself as a bit of a hotshot. And so he came back and he thought he understood enough. And he, he wrote this book, Language, Truth and Logic. And basically, what he argues in that book is that all of the questions that philosophers have traditionally been asking, you know, the big questions about, you know, beauty and truth and, you know, what we call metaphysics, are actually nonsense. And that he introduces this very powerful criterion of sense, which is called the verificationist principle, which basically says that in order for a proposition to have sense, it must be something that could be verified on the basis of observation so what this this move does is uh two things so one thing is it basically renders most of philosophy obsolete and uh, a kind of puffed up nonsense so all of kind of uh, ethics moral philosophy metaphysics religion. most of epistemology religion that's the theology right that's all now just nonsense And the other thing it does is it reconfigures the relationship between philosophy and science. So it makes philosophy basically a technical subject, the goal of which is to translate sentences of ordinary English into clarified propositions, which the scientists can then test against reality, against empirical observation. So it makes philosophy now a subject that's in the service of science rather than a subject that takes science and scientific practice as one of its subject areas and something that it can be critical of, if you like. So obviously, this is like a super exciting idea. And uh, Mary Warnock talks about the the kind of the ripple effect through Oxford of of everybody just suddenly realising that if they didn't like what one of their tutors was saying they could just say very loudly, I don't understand. And, you know, the person would just be devastated. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it it introduces this kind of way of doing philosophy that is, if you like, the death of the conversational mode. Mm-hmm. Because rather than, you know, when you say, I don't understand that being a kind of call for the other person to try again, and an attempt mm-hmm. to sort of collaborate towards some mutual understanding i don't understand now means you know you're mm. talking nonsense and i think that definitely still exists that kind mm. of uh, attitude so that was the kind of yeah that was the sort of context now of course ajr and all those those people who were going around shouting i don't understand were, were the ones who who disappeared when when the war started and one of the things that mary says is that um you know What happened in the classroom was that the mood changed from, um, as she puts it, a lot of clever young men who like competing at winning arguments to a room filled with conscientious objectors and women and um, refugees and um, people who were not able to fight on medical grounds. Um, and instead of competing with each other to win arguments, she says, we turned our intention onto this deeply puzzling world. And, of course, as soon as you start paying attention to a world that is massively confusing and full of people and problems and and reality you know the the mechan you know the the view that logical positivism is promoting just looks completely <laughs> hopeless <laughs> and a bit silly, i suppose, and so um. You know the, the the task then becomes to recover a language and a and a method for actually thinking about reality rather than for kind of playing these this kind of language game. I don't know. Do you want to say anything else about that?
2: Yeah. No. I think that <laughs> you covered that beautifully. Right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: really, really good.
2: Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. I know. I think one of the things we try and do in the book is just. I suppose, oppose very clearly mm-hmm. um, logical positivism and then this alternative that the women are offering. And that's sort of echoed in the name of the book, Metaphysical Animals.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, So the thought there is that we are the kind of animals that ask metaphysical questions. So the why of the metaphysical animal is a, is a it's a kind of a, an ask of the transcendent reality. How do things hang together? How do things fit together beyond my limited experience of the world? So it's it's the complete opposite if you like of uh logical positivism In so far as the verification principle can only get you as far as what your own experience delivers mm. um and you know what philosophy is really is more about on this particular view is more about seeing how things hang together um Mm-hmm. yeah and I mean you can take that as far as you want yeah to. I mean that kind
1: of brings us back to McKinnon who you mentioned yeah. earlier so McKinnon was a, a contemporary of Ayres uh, but he didn't go away to fight because he was mm-hmm. a conscientious object. he was a pacifist so he didn't fight and he stayed behind to teach our women so he knew Ayres work very well and he was, as far as we know, the first person and almost the only person, really, where we've read this this really sharp critique of logical positivism, which isn't a kind of technical critique of the you know the, the verificationist principle or something like that. He says that um, logical positivism is a, is an assault on the spiritual nature of man in the interests of a in method. The, oh yeah, <laughs> in the interests of a method. Yeah. Mm. So he sees you know this idea of of human knowledge and and human scientific activity, as not just you know false about what the scientist does, if you like, and not just epistemically misleading, but as it, an actual assault on the very nature of the human being. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that we just thought was so such a powerful thought, and and one that you can very much trace. I mean, you'll know uh, Mary's work well, Carlin and, and you you know you can see that that deep kind of fear in her work if you like that we mustn't let this scientism engulf us because if we do like it it's it's kind of existentially harmful to us as as human beings to to inhabit that kind of vision of ourselves and and our place in the world
0: yeah i mean i think there there is there is still that instinct isn't there across academia and maybe more widely sometimes which is we've we've found the way to look at the world so let's just do that and let's work out what the rules are for kind of policing that way of viewing the world and then let's just disregard other ways and yeah i think you know you're, you're absolutely right you know, throughout mary midgley's work she's always pushing it back against that not because she's in any way against knowledge produced through different ways of looking at the world she just doesn't want there to be one or people to think that there is just one way. And I think that comes across really so strongly in her work. It's just, it's so creative and imaginative. Um, I mean, if you had to, you know, not not in a sense of kind of a manifesto style kind of uh, coherence, but if you had to offer a kind of what is philosophy for, from the quartet, what kind of things would, would come to mind?
2: Well you know Mary says that we need you know philosophy is not a luxury it's a human need like it's something that humans need to, to get on mm-hmm. um and she ends like what is philosophy for really powerfully by saying look we're in a series of models there's the climate crisis you know our, our the whole biosphere is sort of disintegrating as a result of our actions and like people are trying to work out how they can kind of colonize the moon like she's saying come on like get your act together like get real and I think she sees philosophy as playing this sort of role that can, uh, well, the idea is to try and sort of sort, sort out the kind of conceptual puzzles and the kind of, she, like, really she does a kind of genial logical sort of analysis. Um, is that genius? No, genius. Um, kind of her, 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 what she thinks conceptual analysis should should involve is is sort of laying bare the kind of myths and images. Mm. That shape our thought and action that have got us into these kind of models and uh well crises um mortal kind of crises and um in philosophical plumbing her famous paper i don't know if you know it, Carl. yeah
0: it's great
2: um, yeah. so the thought is you know that's one part of what the philosopher has to do to try and unpick these models and then the second aspect of what the philosopher has to do is to try and create kind of new visions new concepts that can create new ideally sort of can help shape new ways of thinking and acting um so that's what philosophy is for her I mean and if you look at that sort of practically oriented uh that kind of idea you see it also working out in Anscombe certainly Mm -hmm. I would say um Murdoch I would say slightly different would you well um she's also doing that kind of diagnostic work
1: yeah. And she has that amazing, you know, that, that was really important Was man is a creature who makes pictures mm-hmm. of himself and comes to resemble the picture. So mm-hmm. the idea is, I mean, this connects to what you're saying about Mary, that if you take really seriously the idea that philosophy is a human need. So philosophy is whatever it is we're doing whenever we're trying to make sense of things mm-hmm. that go beyond you know that that motivate this kind of metaphysical animal question like why what is happening how do i understand this situation how do i navigate through this next bit where things are very confusing so if that's what philosophy is mary says you know People are going to do this anyway.
2: Yeah, whenever everything <laughs> need some practical perplexity, yeah,
1: you're there, you're doing it. So if the philo- if the professional philosophers aren't doing it, then that need is going to be filled with people doing it badly, people
0: yeah, yeah, bad
1: pitches and and dangerous myths and stories that simplify or occlude mm. or divert. And you know that that comes back around to that, you know, man is a creature who makes pictures of, of himself and then comes to resemble the pictures. That's that's our mother. Like we will naturally form visions of a future, uh, both of you know as collective future and an individual future. And once we create those visions, we're drawn to them and we start to reorientate our world in a way that is progressing towards those visions. Now that's going to happen anyway. That's what what the kind of animal that we are, if you like. So there better be some philosophers there to you know look at what's going on and to analyze and criticize those myths and to steer us in a way that is not just kind of blindly following whatever the latest um, particularly attractive, sparkly uh, vision is, and is actually going to give us visions that connect to what we need at a deep a deep level mm. and, and that's so clear now i mean yeah. when you think about the climate crisis i mean it's mm. it, you know the visions of the future that were being offered mm. of you know us all going and living on mars or uploading our minds onto the internet or you know you just think well, <laughs> really you know that's the that's the vision that we're all meant to be you know marching boldly towards
0: yeah, or technology is going to come to the rescue somehow yeah. without any behavior change. All these sorts of myths. It's, it is powerful. You're right. I mean, it, it, one of the... Uh, yeah, as, as as listeners will tell, will know, I am a, <laughs> I'm a big fan of your book. And one of the great things about it, one of the other great things about it is it, it encourages you to revisit the works of all four, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there was one that I went back and read all read for the first time, I should say, which was Iris Murdoch's House of Theory, one of the papers that you that you uh, discuss, and it, it it felt to me quite similar to um, one of Midgley's papers called Practical Utopianism, where they both kind of make that point you were making, which is that you need visions, um, and from Murdoch's paper, you know, she was obviously speaking specifically about the Labour Party and socialist and left politics it's very much where you have to have some kind of picture and some kind of map that you're trying to follow. It doesn't have to be super specific. It doesn't have to be point by point, but you need to have some kind of guide, um, which I think Midgley also, broadly speaking, signed up to. And it just struck me as another really important point for politics today, you know, and for society today is, you know, do, do we feel like enough time is spent putting those visions together? Because if we've picked up anything from politics over the last decade, it's it seems that some political figures do spend time doing it, but they're often on the political right. Mm,
2: yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, some, some political figures just sort of naturally are able to kind of tune in or, or, or kind of vibe with the fact that animals are these picture-seeking, or sorry, humans are these picture-seeking kind of animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but there needs to be more kind of robust kind of recognition and kind of the kind of theorising around that kind of reality.
1: Yeah, I mean one of the points with um just to bring back to what Claire was saying at the beginning about the framing with Mr. Truman, um one of Anskom's kind of objections to well what Anscombe is objecting to, she says explicitly, isn't Ox isn't what Mr Truman did, although she obviously objects to that too. It's him being shown honest, And she thinks that she sees this as really a a dangerous, corrupting move that this person should be held up as a kind of exemplar, if you like. And I think that there's something um, really powerful about that that we were trying to bring out in in the book as well, that, you know, we have to choose our exemplars really carefully. Because, you know, if you think back to that, that, what we were saying earlier about courage you know, if we hold up Truman and say, this is what courage is, you know, it's making this very difficult decision to kill thousands of innocent people, rather than, you know, letting many more people die. If we say that's what courage looks like, then it's affecting all of us in a really deep way, because it's interacting with all of our conceptions of courage, which is and and our concept of courage is something that we need to use in our day to day life to navigate uh, you know, our, our moral lives with each other. So if we choose bad exemplars, you know, if we say, oh, what you know, Boris Johnson has integrity yeah. because, you know, he, he doesn't hide anything. You always know what he thinks, you know, that's what integrity is. Mm-hmm. Well, that seeps into all of our lives, that, that idea. So, you know, political exemplars and, and the way in which we attribute character traits to them matters to all of us because it affects the concepts that we need in our day-to-day lives together
0: yeah the the um the book finishes um with uh a a page of some photos um and um i don't know uh what it was um but there's something very emotional uh in the in a reaction to seeing those pictures i don't know why i think it's maybe because you do such a brilliant job of um of kind of taking the reader through their lives and 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 feeling kind of quite quite close to them in a way and close to their thinking, that the pictures of them um, uh, is 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 a really nice way to finish the book, um, and the kind of the, the way they they stayed in each other's lives, um, as friends. Um,
1: yeah, a few people have told us they cried. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it's it, I think it's probably quite common. Um so how, how did you come up with the idea for that?
2: Well, I think we end we end the book uh sort of in 56 so they're all about you know late 30s mm-hmm. at that point. Um but of course they go on to have very full uh lives both intellectually and personally and everything. And I suppose it's just a tribute to them at the end. I suppose we wanted to just to Present them as ma- mature, fully fledged kind of mm. uh, human adults, I suppose. And it just—we had that photo of Mary, you know, splashing. Wanted <laughs> to include it; she's so joyful in it. Yeah. But yeah. we
1: did. The pictures were really important throughout,
2: throughout the book. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think maybe you could say something
2: about Well, there's, there's, there's well, there's about 50 photographs in the book and they're sort of woven into the argument, partly because Mm. of what we've been talking about, about imagery and and pictures, but also placement. Like we really wanted the the reader to feel like they were occupying the space, the same space as the women, you know. Mm. Um, That's part of that also partly shaped the form of the book. Uh, we wanted to have the kind of women kind of moving around the spaces that we were writing about so that, you know, even if they weren't on the page, you could sort of imagine them sort of making a cup of tea in the kitchen or something <laughs> like that. So we wanted to create this sort of world. And I suppose, um, yeah, so that's why there's a lot of pictures to sort of geographically locate you and also mm-hmm. kind of materially locate you. But uh, it's just it's just a euphoric ending, isn't it? Yeah. Mary, Slashing and the, the, these brilliant women I and mean, we just feel so privileged and you know to have written this piece so yeah. it's just a testimony to them but another thing I suppose that those photographs at the end have their dates you know
0: yeah
2: Mary 1919 to 2018 she died when she was 99 we didn't want to we wanted to present them as alive throughout the book as much as we could so we never sort of you know introduce Mary as saying you know she's born in 1919 mm-hmm. and then yeah, she, yeah. we never wanted to we wanted to have them alive fully um mm-hmm. i suppose throughout the book and then so at the end you know you just we have a little afterward where you you uh we just give a brief resume of their incredible
1: achievements mm-hmm.
2: and it is moving
1: yeah i think, I think connected to that time like, uh sorry carl wh- when you said earlier that um it, it made you go off and, and read their work i think that was another aspect that we were trying to do we didn't want to occupy this kind of authorial position where we were telling you, you know, oh, here's Iris Murdoch's theory of this, or, you know, here's, you know, Elizabeth Anscombe's philosophy of action. We wanted it to be kind of you witnessing it on the page as they were doing it. Hmm. And then, you know, that you would read it and think, wow, I want to find out more about that. I want to go and actually read the rest of that radio talk that I've just heard, you know, the last sentence of. I'll go and read you know I'll go and you know tune into the whole thing now so we very much wanted it to be that you were getting these you know you were witnessing the philosophy as it was unfolding and you were seeing it being presented as it was then at the time like for example there's a scene where um, Elizabeth Anscombe's giving her talk on the reality of the past and it's you know her first Talk about Wittgenstein, and you kind of you hear fragments of it from the perspective of, of Iris Murdoch in the audience, um, and we very much didn't want to say, you know, according to Elizabeth Anscombe, the reality of the past consisted. Yeah. You know, we wanted you to hear it and think, "Wow, this is kind of intriguing," and then go off and read mm-hmm. read her mm-hmm. her work because one of the things about these four women that makes them such a joy to study is they are all such stylists in their writing. You know, mm-hmm. they write, each one of them, I mean, you'll know from from Mary Carl, Like, you can't mistake a Mary Mishley paper for anybody else. She has such, she's so alive and so witty in, in the way she writes. And each of them have such a distinctive, engaging style of writing. Mm-hmm. That you, you know, we want anybody who reads the book to really read it and then put it away and then actually go and read the women because they're so such amazing writers.
2: I mean, at the same time, we did try and give like enough philosophy so that you'd you'd have the confidence to go and read those papers. Yeah, Yeah. Yes, we, we wanted, especially in the early part of the book, we wanted the reader to be kind of getting the same education as the women got. Um, and to have enough of the kind of conceptual tools to sort of see what's happening in, in the women's philosophy then.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big ambition, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. but, uh, you, I think you definitely deliver on it in, in, in terms of being able to, you know, it, it's not a book... Um, that's just going to sit in an academic's office. It's a book that a lot of people are going to read, but it's also a book about what it, what are at times, right, really complex philosophical matters. Um, but the balance that you guys achieve is is brilliant, I think.
1: Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's really nice. Yeah, because we did very much have these two audiences in mind. You know, it's Chatter and Windows so it's a trade publisher, and we wanted to write it for people who'd never read a philosophy book to be able to pick it up. And, and read it and think whoa philosophy is a cool subject <laughs> um, but also you know we're making a, an argument to our colleagues um a, you know we're quite a complex argument that involves the integration of metaphysics and epistemology and, and ethics so we wanted them to be able to read it as well and to kind of see the like the workings if you like and the, the depth of the philosophy that's there so it was yeah it was great fun doing it together for sure <laughs>
0: Right. Well, look, fantastic. I mean, I think, um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll finish our conversation there, but for those who um, want to know more, and I'm sure that's probably all of you um, metaphysical animals is available in, in all good bookshops. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a really great read um, and I have no doubt you'll enjoy it. And I just want to say thanks to, to Claire and, and Rachel for, for joining us uh, this week. Um, you can um, follow the Marlin Institute podcasts um, on all of the usual social media channels and all of the places you usually get your podcasts. And you can also sign up for our newsletter to hear about our events um, and future episodes. Thank you so much um, for listening. Take care.